0: Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the podcast. We are the Ambassadors at Large. My name is Joe Genie, based in Washington, D.C. Great to have you with us. This is a podcast about international affairs. So let's go back briefly to May 2nd, 2011. It's about midnight. I'm in New York. And my roommate comes in just completely stammering. And he's just he just says... Osama Bin Laden is dead, and he wouldn't even tell me anything else. He just kept saying it over and over again. And very soon there was this sort of cathartic release from fear, and people were dancing in Times Square, and it was just this, it was this sort of bizarre party. Um, And I mention this because it was basically the last time that the Democrats had an edge in foreign policy. Obviously, politics are supposed to stop at the water's edge, but they do poll about which party is favored on national security and at that particular moment republicans were saddled with the iraq war obama was popular all over the world pretty much and uh, and had seemingly demonstrated that you could fight terror and be liked at the same time that now increasingly looks like a blip on the radar where uh, against the standard backdrop of republicans having a a decisive often double digit edge in uh, national security approval ratings by the general public, and uh, my guest today uh, studies this for a living and and wants to fix it. I am delighted to introduce uh, Jim Arcadis. He's the president of Four D PAC and a fellow at the Truman Project. Uh, Jim, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. So
0: perhaps you could explain off the bat uh, what Four D PAC is and what you do.
1: Sure, uh, we are a multi-candidate uh, independent political action committee. Um, that means uh, we give uh, hard money to uh, candidates for principally House and Senate. Um, we represent kind of the center left uh, uh, foreign policy, and national security, and um, we endorse candidates and work with them on messaging and things of that nature. So it's really, I mean,
0: especially today's foreign policy crises are very difficult to, to soundbite. So... If you, had to, if you had to give a prescription for what it is that Democrats struggle with so much on foreign policy, wh- what is the problem? Why do Republicans have a 14-point lead here or whatever it is these days, even though their most prominent accomplishment uh, in the last 15 years is the Iraq War, and even though you've got guys like Bill Kristol wanting to put 50,000
1: troops in Damascus? Um, in a nutshell, I'd say that the Democrats problem on foreign policy is that <laughs> they try and sort of almost be too nuanced about it um, and that when you start painting in shades of gray, it, it, it doesn't work right Like voters make judgments about leadership when you start talking about national security and foreign policy. You could talk about individual policies until you're blue in the face but what voters really care about they use it as a proxy to assess whether a, a candidate or a member of the House or Senate or any uh, any, any elected official, is a leader and like feels it in their gut. It's sort of like another level of the beer test. You know, would you want to sit down and have a beer test with that person? Do you think that this person is somebody who you would like leading you into war? And Democrats have been failing that basically um, for easily the last 20 years, and you could argue um, as far back as Vietnam. And, and, of course, everything that's happened since Iraq has only served to reinvigorate a lot of those splits within the Democratic Party and um, um, the, the general public's kind of mistrust of Democrats to handle national security affairs.
0: So the, the Democrats are, are commonly divided into kind of the anti-war left and then the sort of center left, the sort of liberal internationalist uh uh, Truman-based Democrats. Uh, I think there's actually sort of a third school that uh, Barack Obama, to a large extent, belongs to, which is the realist school, which is sort of much, much more (coughs) difficult to sell to the American public. Because in a way, you're you're sort of saying, we'll advance America's interests, But in another way, it's sort of like, it's just, just deeply jibes badly with American values the idea that, that we should advance our that we don't have any special mission that we're just the latest great power and we should try and stay that way because that's what great powers do and, and I mean Obama's thing about wanting to get out of Iraq and Afghanistan was basically more than anything that it's basically just not worth the amount of money and lives that we're investing in it to continue being there not saying you know this is immoral not framing it so much in moral terms but more in the national interest that's really hard to sell, isn't well, it? I
1: mean, well, not only that, I would actually fundamentally disagree with you on uh, Barack Obama being kind of a progressive realist. Um, th- this goes back a long way, right? I think he was saddled with a bunch of problems coming into office, obviously both domestic and internationally, but internationally he's he's basically tried to clean up out of the past. In a perfect world, he would like to have a priority list of things that he wants to do internationally. And even more so, I think that he wants to, he has ideas and he understands that America should play an active role in the world and, and, and it should search to uphold its ideals when it acts abroad. But when you're dealing with a set of very discrete problems, um, there is this tendency towards realism. What are our interests? How do we act as quickly as possible to fix them? So. Um, the, the practice of foreign policy may look more realist but I, I, I genuinely do think in Barack Obama's heart of hearts that he would like to be kind of a more progressive or liberal internationalist
0: yeah and I, I think interviews where he's talked about foreign policy he, he does say that it's it, we often frame it as interests versus values but it's it's kind of a false choice you're trying to do both as as much as possible if you're thinking long term they line up much more then if you're thinking just short term, like, oh, no, this this government's going to collapse and we like them or or they work with us and, and we should keep them in power, even if they're abhorrent, that sort of thing. Um, but but on the whole, would you say I mean, uh, uh, most people don't approve of Obama's foreign policy. Is that a
1: messaging problem or is that an action problem? Um, I think it's about 16 problems. <laughs> um I, what you just said about this idea of our values and our interests sometimes being at odds, and certainly they are over the, the short term, right? Um, I advocate very strongly for the idea that, that the United States needs a wholesale re-examination of its foreign policy and how it acts abroad and what it's trying to do. Um, when you look at how the United States has acted in the Middle East over the course of basically the last five or six decades, um, you know, we talked about this the other night when we first started getting on this topic, the idea basically is let's find a dictator from Morocco through Afghanistan and we will uh, we've, we prize as a country stability over the short term, right? And the deal basically is we will take dictator X in whatever country they are and if that dictator maintains domestic stability, um, doesn't tick off Israel too much, um, and those things are achieved, then the deal is we'll sell them weapons, right? Uh, and will kind of turn a blind eye when they rig elections, when they suppress the press, when they don't allow people you know, freedom of expression, that sort of a thing. That obviously, you know, especially over the last five years, Uh, certainly over the last 15 years, has improved, has proven inherently unstable, right? And so when I talk about a wholesale re-examination of American foreign policy in the Middle East, it's this idea that we have to get, we've got to like basically wipe the slate completely clean and reorient American foreign policy so we start prizing our values and our interests. They are aligned because when we stand for things internationally like freedom of expression, equality of opportunity, of human rights, minority rights, free press, democratic institutions, it's gonna take forever, right? It, this, is, this is a generational problem. This is, not, this is not the length of one administration or two administrations. Like it's the idea that, that we have to start from a completely clean slate and begin to begin to involve ourselves and stand for the values uh, that, that we do at home while acting abroad and, and America can foster change over the margins over time. Um, but this isn't this isn't a quick fix, right?
0: So so let's maybe talk about because you do messaging. So let's let's talk about maybe a couple of. I mean, if you're going to think about Obama's foreign policy legacy, I mean, the people are going to talk about the Iran deal. People are going to talk about whatever happens at this Paris climate climate conference. Maybe
1: they'll talk about Bin Laden.
0: Yeah, they'll talk about Bin Laden. Um, they'll talk about Libya. Syria and Ukraine a lot in particular. Yeah. So how so so let's take Libya for example because that's really a case of, of America I mean our interest would have been uh, honestly he's a, he's a dictator who has given stability who the Europeans can thank him for not having swarms of refugees coming from North Africa if they, you know if they prefer that sort of thing.
1: Right. He uh, got scared out of his mind after Iraq and gave up nuclear weapons. Yeah, know.
0: exactly. So he, he was he was the strong man that you speak of. And and <laughs> The U.S. intervention in, in Libya was probably the least realist thing we have done right. in, in Obama's no, foreign policy. Yeah. How do you? But today it, it looks bad. How do you?
1: How do you sell the idea that Libya was worth doing? It's a, okay. It's a really tough sell, right? Um, the one thing that Gaddafi did in Libya, which which sort of sealed his fate was he went on national tv or radio i forget what what it was and he basically announced to the world benghazi uh, i'm paraphrasing but it was something along the lines of benghazi i'm coming for you tonight uh, blood will the the streets will run red with your blood right yeah it was uh, hunting
0: down like rats of house to house i believe or yeah. <laughs> was right. in there somewhere and
1: so <laughs> when you when you're a dictator and you make the mistake of announcing that to the international community you sort of compel the international community to act right you look yeah. at other dictators throughout the region like assad You know, Assad or Putin or, you know, whomever have basically been smart enough to not explicitly state their intentions and compelled international action. So I, for one, you know, faced with, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of deaths in Benghazi, you know, shame on the international community if you're not compelled to act in that circumstance just to protect innocent civilians who don't deserve to die for any reason other than Gaddafi woke Mm -hmm. up one morning and decided that, that that was part of his civil war plan, Right. Yeah. No, go ahead.
0: (laughs) So what, I mean, now it hasn't worked out very well. And this is one of the difficult things. Really good foreign policy outcomes don't often happen on an electoral
1: cycle. Okay. So let me cut you off right there. Like this is exactly the point, right? This is exactly the fundamental problem of everything. It's that you and I are sitting here now four years after Libya happened. And we basically say, man, it hasn't worked out that well. Like, this is not a four-year issue, it's a 40-year issue, and it might be a 400-year issue. We when when we start talking about national security and foreign policy outcomes, we are so accustomed to thinking, okay, it's the problem started on X date, the 24-hour news cycle demands accountability by, you know, Y date, and if we haven't, you know, created a Jeffersonian democracy in Libya by date Y, then it's been a failure and shame on Barack Obama, he should have known better. Like I disagree with that because, A, it was a fundamentally good thing to save civilian lives. We as a foreign policy institution and a voting public have to readjust our expectations to understand that democracy is messy and it takes a long time, like a really long time, not four days, not four months, not four years, maybe 40 years, maybe a lot longer than that. Right, And we have the West speaking broadly about the United States and Europe. Uh, has prized the idea of stability in the short term, rather than the idea of messy democracy in the long term. The idea of stability in the short term brought us the Arab Spring. It brought us instability, right? And so, the, when we talk about the foreign policy legacy of Barack Obama or, or, or George Bush or, or the, whoever the next president is, if you really want to talk about somebody creating an amazing foreign policy legacy, it would be to abandon the idea that we are just going to support petty dictators because that has not proven in America in America's interest over the long term. Like it is no secret or not even secret. It is no coincidence that we've gotten involved in basically now four really messy military altercations in the Middle East because we've pursued this policy for decades, right? And so when we talk about legacies, the the and leadership the presidential administration the president that says you know what that who recognizes that this hasn't worked and then turns around and says you know what we're going to let the quote unquote bad guys or the guys who don't share all of our values win and we're going to allow them to fail and when they fail we're going to step in and i mean not even step in that's a that's a that's a loaded term but like we are going to encourage. Uh, we are going to c- encourage further development from the point of view of our values. Right? When is the next election? How do we ensure that you know that democratic institutions like a free press and electoral commissions and all of that good stuff, political parties are vibrant and can realistically compete? And it's not going to be democracy. Doesn't happen in one election. It doesn't happen in two two elections. It happens when there is a long-term expectation of peaceful transfers of power.
0: Yeah, and, and where you can you can lose and not lose everything, and, and where there's institutions where you trust that if your mm-hmm. opponent gets the presidency. Your opponent can't use the government to keep themselves in power forever, and there, there, there isn't the kind of patronage networks like like you see. There's a lot right. of things that go into this. Now with Libya, it was almost at the time, even though it's turned out badly. Uh, no, stop saying. Okay. You, stop
1: talking like it's turned out. Let, badly, let me, Right? right. Like, even in the yeah. process of turning out. Yeah, it'll take exactly. Forever.
0: It's like it's like the old thing. Uh, I forget if it was Mao or Deng who apocryphally was. In Paris, and was asked about the French Revolution, and said it's too soon to tell. Right, no, no,
1: no. That, 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 yeah, that's exactly it.
0: But yeah, so like,
1: like the French yeah. Revolution finally worked itself out, but it was basically after World yeah. War II when it, that happened. It took several <laughs> republics, or possibly yeah.
0: even after Algeria. It's Right, like, yeah, right. No, so
1: so Libya
0: was kind of easy in a way. I mean, it was it was a courageous decision. It was not at all clear what what Obama was going to do, even necessarily what he should do. But I think that he did the right thing. And it was it was a little bit easier because you had these this this incredible scene. Egypt, had ju- you know, Tunisia had just happened. Egypt was happening. Um, Gaddafi was literally threatening to. Hunt people down, like you said, and his his diplomats bravely defected and asked the Security Council to intervene right. against their own country. It was really it was a powerful thing of of an entire country rising up against a me- megalomaniacal dictator. It was really it was really difficult to do anything other than than what he did. What about something like Syria, where it's more like a kind of alien versus predator type fight, or versus Freddy versus Jason versus the Kurds, and there right. there are no necessarily good guys. It's sort of the James Baker problem in the Balkans in '91. We don't have a dog in this fight. How do you well, pitch something? Well, no, so something? I
1: think, A, I think we do have a dog in the fight, and that is the long-term stability of the region. However, that, well, long-term stability and, and, and vibrant democracy and economic well, we development, have no, right?
0: We have no dog with guns like, in the fight. Right, right. There's <laughs>
1: not, you know, we, sure, we like the free Syrian army or whomever happens to share our ideals at the time, right? I actually think the better example of, of transition to power, because clearly we are still at with something like Syria, like we are still in the military stage, right? There has to be winners and losers, however that happens. And the United States basically picks its you know, least bad option and, and tries to support them as best possible within the political constraints of the time. Um, and then once all of that settles, Assad stays, Assad goes, there's a negotiated exit for Assad, whatever it is, then we say, okay, we're at this point, this is how the entire thing is shaken out. Now, we start encouraging democratic institutions, right? I think a better example, at least for the purposes of the immediate discussion, is Egypt, right? So Mubarak's in power, people, you know, he's been in power for 30, 40 years, people are sick of it, they rise up in the streets, wonderful stuff, freedom, democracy, we want to express ourselves, the jerk has got to go, and, you know, lo and behold, they do it, and it's, you know, an amazing celebration, series of constitutional congresses and, and elections and whatever, Morsi, from the Muslim Brotherhood, ends up in power. The, the West, broadly defined, is, is nervous by this. Morsi's biggest mistake, and this is part of, you know, allowing messy elections to happen and having them fail, is that with a guy like Morsi, he won 50 plus one per, he, 50% plus one vote, and he thought it was absolute power. Yep. Right? And so... Then all of a sudden, everybody, you know, after basically a year of this, everybody was like, well, wait a minute, we didn't go for this either. He refused to give, uh, you know, members of uh, people who are not in the Muslim Brotherhood any, any stake in the government, you know, all of this stuff. There wasn't a consolidated um, uh, coalition, basically. So this encourages another round of protests, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Boom, military coup. And it's almost like the Obama administration and 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 Europeans breathed a broad sigh of relief that it was like oh thank god at least we can at least we could deal with the military dictator because we know what we're getting right yeah. that is fundamentally unstable and will prove a fool's errand in the long run yeah the one thing
0: i really appreciate about obama's and this is one of the reasons why you know it's subtle and it's hard to sell is that in egypt i felt like what he did was he gave the country a chance and I mean, the way that we sort of subtly—you know—we didn't boot Mubarak out the door. We sort of right. subtly said, "My friend, it's time."
1: Yeah. And I, yeah,
0: yeah. And, but also, I mean, this is what happened in Egypt is not unusual. A lot of times, after you've had military dictatorship for a long time, fifty years, uh, a democratic election happens. Somebody, uh, you know. De- democratically elected op, formerly opposition guys come in they try to make reforms a lot of times they're either more or less religious than the previous guys who, who were in power and they try and eventually they start jockeying for power like who's going to have control of the judiciary who's going to have control of the intelligence services and there's this military backlash and especially if you have a country that's really poor and and uh people you know, revolutions always tank the economy in the short term because nobody goes as a tourist. That kind of thing. Sooner or later, people are going to get tired of this new democratic leadership and wind up having millions of people protesting in the street to, to have it removed. Like this is not, We saw this in the Maldives. We saw this in Turkey repeatedly. It sure. takes a long time to build a democratic. And and so I think like in, in the U.S the way we handled Egypt was actually really good. It just didn't lead to a good outcome within a Barack Obama's presidency.
1: True. So there, there are a couple, yes, absolutely. There are a couple interesting aspects to that. Like the main challenge once you, okay, so first challenge is we need this fundamental reorientation of American foreign policy, right? Second challenge is how do you institutionalize that worldview over administrations of both political parties, right? Who understand that the road to long-term stability and American security goes through blossoming democracy that's going to take a long time when if you, have a pre- if you are the president, you are looking at four to eight years, right? And doesn't every single president look abroad and say, gosh, I really wish that all of everything would just sort of stay peaceful and stable under my watch. And Americans who vote in Ohio or Iowa or Nevada or name your flyover state um, don't really care about Algeria or Egypt or wherever. All they know is that, like, if you're if you're a voter in in a swing state somewhere and you're not engaged in the ivory tower foreign policy establishment, um, you know you look you look around, and the easiest way to make sense of the world is by saying it's all a mess. We're doing something wrong, right? Stuff is on, like Glenn Beck, when he had his TV show on Fox, basically put a big map of the world up and walked around and was like, this country is on fire. And he put like a magnet of flames on like Russia and Syria and Egypt and like, and like, if you don't, if you don't care about foreign policy, that's, that's the way you understand things. Right. And so whether it's the Democratic Party, any, any elected official has, has the fundamental challenge of trying to talk about it in a way that makes sense out of chaos. So, so how do how do you avoid the trap
0: that that the the center left often falls into, where it's it's like you have something like Syria, where there's there's not really a good military solution in the short term, at least for the United States, uh, nothing that really advances our interests, and so the anti-war left is like, no, we shouldn't get involved. This is right. all our fault anyway, right. uh, which wins wins no votes. Right. A- and then the Republicans are like, let's put fifty thousand troops in Damascus, and liberty will flower. And and Democrats wind up saying. No ground troops, just airstrikes. Right? <laughs> How do you avoid you, that trap?
1: Well, I, I mean, so a in in a lot of cases, like there, mili- a military solution is, is part, or a military option is part of the solution, right? I'm not a military strategist. I couldn't tell you where airstrikes air versus ground troops versus whatever strategy within you know the military uh, array of options is going to be the best given any situation. But I do know that. On the far left, you know, we're left with a situation where um, the prevailing the prevailing frame of mind is because we did we the Americans did the wrong thing in Iraq means that we should stick our heads in the sand and do nothing anywhere else, right? And that is wrong, right? So the way I message it is you lead with the idea that our values are our interests, right? We why would we stand for anything other? Than our core values and what it means to be the United States of America when we act abroad, right? Why would we allow these companies or these companies, these countries to be basically fundamentally unstable by propping up dictators that people hate, right? And so when we start realizing at at home and sometimes we do a bad job of it at home too, but the amazing power of the United States is that we have these discussions and correct our faults over time. Look, look no further than Barack Obama's election to say that that was basically a fundamental rejection of Iraq, right? So when we say we should stand for equality of opportunity, uh, freedom of expression, uh, equal access to the ballot box, Uh, the the idea that everybody gets a fair shake and, and has the opportunity to make a good life for themselves. Why would we stand for anything else abroad, right? Being a great power is kind
0: of like it's 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 like the old Google saying don't be evil. We're the, we're the least evil great power of all time. And 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 we've we've created this international sovereign order that is basically almost unprecedented in human history. The idea that states are independent, that they're sovereign, that they get to that they get to govern themselves and that people should be represented in them and that there should be a universal covenant of of human values that that is spread the world over. Uh, these these are powerful ideas, and they're very different than almost every great power that preceded right. us that, that governed based on empire. And it's something to be sort of proud of and and, and embrace. Especially, I mean, th- I guess that's one of the things that it's like yeah. the very
1: definition of soft power. Yeah, right? like the soft power is that you like that countries countries are attracted to you because they want to be like you. I mean, there's also the the cultural aspect of it, too, that flows from the idea that you could express yourself however you want to, right? I'll put in a a brief plug. I saw a great uh, documentary this week called Free to Rock. And it's the idea of how rock and roll basically helped end the Cold War. And it did because because records, you know, Beatles records, Elvis records, um, you know, Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones, uh, to name more British bands than American bands, uh, basically, started getting across the Iron Curtain. Whether it was Radio Free Liberty, Voice of America, smuggled records, copied records, that sort of thing, and it sort of spread. And the basically, the idea was that in a closed society, people could look somewhere else and find that there was this awesome music that that said that people could do anything that they wanted and express themselves any way they wanted, and like that. That's a fundamental representation of of soft power and why people want to be like the United States. Yeah, and we've gotten away from that a little bit, right?
0: Yeah, it's it's almost like we're afraid to to stand up for our values because our values were, were used in, in the prosecution of the Iraq War, which was a disaster. And so now we're like, well, maybe we shouldn't promote democracy abroad. Of course we should promote democracy abroad. We should right. just be smarter about it.
1: Right. It's a means versus ends conversation. Yeah. Right? Like It's like how you do it, not you whether you do it. You don't it. export democracy from the working end of a how, howitzer. Yeah. Right? Like, you don't show up and say, now you'll be all democratic and put a gun to somebody's head. No. Basically, you say like like we did with Mubarak, hey, buddy, it's time to think about stepping aside now and understanding that there will be messy chaos for a while as there is basically a power vacuum and, and saying, look, we're the United States. We're here to help. We're help, here to help build institutions. We understand that we cannot do this, but whenever we act abroad, this is what we stand for, right? And I, the other thing I would add is, I don't want to have this be some sort of weird idealistic, like, oh, haha, it would it, like great idea, it would never work in practice, right? Because I do understand that in the short term, we do need to make trade-offs to get things accomplished. Right, and this is a very important point because when you do that, you can say, okay, look, I understand that we will not completely hold to this value or that value because something that is more important in the next couple days, months, whatever it is, needs to get accomplished. But it should always be part of the conversation and part of the equation to say, are we doing this and are we standing for what we believe are our core values? And if we're not, let's at least acknowledge that fact.
0: Yeah, and sometimes you have to have relationships with with. It, not even propping up dictators, but just have relationships with groups. Sure, and you know. leverage. Yeah, like like with the Egyptian military, we didn't cut off aid to the Egyptian military, at least not for not for very long uh, after the after the coup. We refused to call it a coup because then we would have had to, and that's partly because we have this long-standing relationship with the Egyptian military, which allows us to have some sort of influence over the region and, and allows us to sort of inculcate our, our values. It's a difficult trade-off. Like, do do we? They just overthrew a democratically elected guy, but we also don't want to lose contact with the it, country it, It's completely
1: mind-boggling that the United States is the most powerful country in the history of the world, but it's almost like we're scared to use our leverage. Yep, Right? Like, oh, well, gosh, if we call it a coup, then we're going to have to take away military aid, and then we're worried about losing our leverage and not being able to talk to the generals (laughs) who are now in power. It's like, that's ridiculous. That is exactly why you decide to remove military aid. Because you want leverage. You want them to come to you on your terms.
0: Now, now, one one final thing we we can't finish this without talking about the the rise of other great powers, Russia, China, in particular China in the long term, but Russia in the in the short term. Uh, how do you? This is one of these difficulties where where there are so many counterfactuals and policy and values run up against pragmatism when Russia does something like the Georgia incursion or the the Crimea annexation, it's like, we can't actually go, like, send warships to Crimea without risking World War III. But we have to do something. And and Obama did respond. We, we we orchestrated international sanctions. The Europeans turned against them. Sanctions targeted
1: he, he, at Putin's yeah. clique of cronies, yeah. right, as opposed to the Russian state, which is very yeah. interesting. But sorry, go on.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a question of who <laughs> who who holds the influence in Russia. But but also, and Obama going to to the Baltics and and making more explicit security guarantees, really laying down the law that you know this kind of thing cannot happen in in Estonia. It, right. Ukraine is one thing but Estonia is another and yet all of that is unsatisfying very few people are like Obama's doing the right thing on Ukraine even though he probably is how do you sort of sell and this was a problem that Truman had where Truman yeah. did not want to to have permanent war with the Chinese and, and he paid a political price for that but that was a pragmatic decision that only looks smart in hindsight but at the time was pilloried by and, and cost him a, a lot of public support during his presidency how do you sell the unsatisfying
1: um well, I I would even take a step back from that and say that I thought the Obama administration's response to uh, basically everything from Georgia to Russia has been underwhelming. Um, and so I would be like... Although, interestingly, Georgia was...
0: The Bush administration did almost exactly the same thing. Right,
1: right. But while... And, and both will be pilloried for being too weak on on Putin. Now, um, the thing in, in all of the above is basically you know, we could shake a stick at people and we could say, gosh, you know, sanctions and we're gonna target these people and whatever. Those are probably, those ha- have been having effect, right? Um, the, I was talking to a, a friend of mine named uh, Edmundus Yakolaitis, who's basically the uh, the David Letterman of uh, of uh, Latvia. Uh, and he's, uh, he, he was born in the Soviet Union. He's got a hammer and a sickle on his passport. I tell this, this story, you know, somewhat frequently. And basically he will say quite express, explicitly, um, the only thing that Russians understand is power, right? And so at the end of the day, if we don't do things like be a little bit more aggressive with our military, understand that, yeah, we could put a couple hundred troops in country X, whether that's, whether that's the Balkans, uh, I'm sorry, the Baltics, uh, or, or even Ukraine to say, look, we're not there because we want a massive military operation, but these people are a tripwire, right? You do something that hurts them and that's going to cause a lot of problems, right? And so call his bluff, right? And so we did a lot of good on the sanctions and everything else. We did very little on actually trying to call his bluff and say, look, I don't think that you're willing to push this to the point where you actually want World War III, so keep going until you get to a point where you decide that the risks are too high. And then I'm willing to bet that he back down.
0: Jim Arcadis, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Where can our uh, our listeners find you on the internet?
1: Uh, the internet is... Uh, so you can look for me at uh, on Twitter, uh, Jim Arcadis, J-I-M-A-R-K-E-D-I-S, uh, or 4 d PAC's website is www.4DPAC.com. You also have a book. I do. Uh, it's called Political Mercenaries. Uh, it has nothing to do with foreign policy. It has a lot to do... Uh, with how money and politics has exploded over the course of the last 20 years. Which I think increasingly
0: does have to do with foreign yeah, policy. Right, right.
1: Like when, when you, one of the first things you said was the idea that water, that politics, or I'm sorry, that foreign policy stops at the water edge, water's edge. That's not necessarily true anymore. And a large reason for that is is because billionaire donors have their their say and their sway over a lot of elected officials. So yes, political mercenaries, please go check it out.
0: All right, we will link to that and uh, and uh, Jim's Twitter feed on uh, the podcast website. You can find the podcast online at jogini.com. Uh, that's J O E G e n i dot slash podcast, and you can also subscribe on iTunes by by uh, searching for Ambassadors at Large. Leave us a five star review, or even like a four star review would be cool if you like like the show but don't love it. Uh, this
1: this interview will certainly be five stars, however.
0: Five stars, five stars for this interview and and uh, and all future interviews and and some past interviews as well. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Thank you so much. Bye bye.